Nine against the nine. Nine against the nine. Nine against the nine. against the nine. Nine 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 against the nine. A podcast about Lord of the Rings. So what are we doing? We're we're trying to record nine separate podcast episodes about nine discrete topics, and they're all about Lord of the Rings. Are they all about Middle Earth, or are they just about Lord of the Rings? What do you think? Tell the re- tell the listener. I think it's hard to like. It's we'll come to a place where it's going to be difficult to not bring in other things, probably, because there is it's a very long history of a world, and we're getting like and the Lord of the Rings covers is takes place in two different ages the war of the rings the lord of the rings the three the three books kind of, yeah i guess wow that's there are an two there of, are two ages in in those three books that's an interesting way of putting it and they come out of uh another age as well so really it's three ages that we're dealing with sure. the nerds the nerds who are listening are already <laughs> troubled by your by the way you describe the ages <laughs> but maybe not Hopefully there are listeners and... Do we need to preface this with like introductions like who we are or we'll whatever do backgrounds? We'll do, yeah, we'll okay. do it. We can also move it around. So like nerds don't get I, mad at me. <laughs> I want to get... I'll get out of the way with this thing first. Um, I write a lot. I think of myself as someone who writes to think things out and I've never really... I've never, I've never done podcasting or anything like that. So one thing that might happen at times is I might have written something and I might choose to read it. And then probably realistically, I'll probably just skim it and summarize it and maybe maybe not. I really don't know. Um, so I'm looking right now at a list of things to talk about, but you're probably right. We should probably do who we are first and what, how we came to Lord of the Rings. (laughs) Yeah. All right. You want to go first? All right. My name's Clark. I, uh, I'm a teacher. I do not teach English. I am a slow reader. I don't know. I... I'll tell you how I came to Lord of the Rings. Um, It was Christmas one year when I was young. I don't know. Yay tall. You can't see where my hand is. Um, I was younger, and my grandmother got me a six cassette, a a box set of six cassettes of The Hobbit, a dramatic reading. It might have been BBC, um, but it had the whole story of The Hobbit. And it was really cool to see, and the like the the smell of the wood box. Yeah, I was going to say the wood box edition. Yeah, that whole thing. And it was like stamped burn stamped mm-hmm. in i know it and i had like a, a cassette deck um so i played that and i was like this is great and i would do other stuff while i did it and i listened to those cassettes uh, time after time after time really liked it uh my brother always had lord of, he had the lord of the rings as a book and i never read it um it was in his room and i didn't like to go in there <laughs> um older brother older brother year and a half he used to beat me up as a child he'd already read him he read lord of the rings yeah, word. I mean, he didn't really beat me up, like, he's, but it's like physical dominance, so I had to do like fake crying to get parents involved. <laughs> That's how I won. So, at some point, I found like I wanted to have another audiobook and got the Lord of the Rings series and listened to those. I listened to those repeatedly. Um, they were also very instrumental in my first years of teaching when my mind was just going at nighttime as a way to disconnect from the shitstorm of public education and try and get to sleep i have the first time i read lord of the rings was for this podcast so most of my understanding is through listening to it many many times and watching the movies which we're going to try to avoid talking about i believe yeah that's probably on the list of things all right cool so 
Uh, as Clark mentioned, Clark works at a public high school. I also, I'm John. I work at that same public high school. That's how Clark and I met. Um, I work as an English teacher there. Uh, Lord of the Rings. I read it in probably like seventh grade. Uh, and I remember being in a situation where a friend of mine was reading it with me and we were kind of like racing through them. And I thought we were racing to see who would get the rights to get the Silmarillion out of the library first. But he quit after he quit after uh, Return of the King. So I had the Silmarillion to myself. Um, so that's like back in the day, right? Seventh grade. I don't know when I read him again. I think I, I think I read him again in high school. I know I liked it enough to to write in my yearbook. Uh, whatever, like, what's it called? Like a profile, my yearbook profile. Let's say, favorite book, Lord of the Rings. Not like your your quote. You no, the, no, the, no, not my favorite quote, which was "Judge not, lest ye be judged." Uh, the no, Bible. Lord, I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Just moralistic. Uh, high ground kind of talk I guess Lord of the Rings so I don't know how into Lord of the Rings I was for the next like 20 years or whatever um, I think probably I listened to them next on audiobook that I got through Clark and I don't think I've read them with my eyes since I was probably in high school which is interesting although I might have once in my 20s I'm not sure um, I've listened to him on audiobook a few times, probably three times since in the last five years, or in the last two years even. And I have seen the movies, maybe, but not like, I've never been real into movies, and I don't, I'm don't. i sure I didn't finish Return of the King, for whatever reason, I don't know why. Um, I got pretty bored with the Two Towers movie. Um, we will avoid talking about them, but it'll come up. And I, maybe we should say that differently. We're not going to avoid it if it comes up, but the focus is not like a comparison of the Peter Jackson vision with the Tolkien vision. And those movies came, they came out during my high, like my four years of high school or right. Return of the King was senior year. I, I was part of a school-wide sort of skit performance where a bunch of members of the school like had a competition who could reenact some scene and make, like give it a twist. Um, and then like the audience voted. What scene, what scene did you do? Oh, it's a conglomeration of scenes. Um, the music Gimli was like, oh, toss me up to play with the tree. I was <laughs> worm tongue. Uh, then there was the standoff of... Toss me up to play with the tree? Is that a thing that happens in Lord of the Rings? No, it's toss me. Like, don't... The dwarf doesn't want to be tossed, but then he's like, he can't make the distance toss me, so Aragorn tosses him. That happens in the book? At Helm's in... Deep, yeah. Oh, weird. That's curious because of the dwarf tossing situation. That's probably for a different podcast. <laughs> okay. I've never heard of Dwarf Tossing. Uh, that's not something I'm familiar with. Mm. I want to say one more thing about the movies, actually. So I will say, like, the movies... What year did... The, do you know what year Fellowship came out? 01? Okay. Same with, like, Harry Potter. Sure. So 01 is... I'm in college, and I do remember going with my high school friends, um, one of whom was the dude who I was racing through the books back in seventh grade, going to see it and um, like really being blown away, not not because of the perfection of the film, but just like seeing Middle Earth on a screen for the first time after like what for that point had been like a, a young adult life of thinking about it. <clears throat> just the opening scene where, you know, first of all, it's the fight scene, um, the battle, but like really when Gandalf rolls into the Shire, 
the like sort of formal beginning of Lord of the Rings. I, I, I think I wept in the theater just looking at it so green and vibrant. I went to New Zealand too uh, shortly thereafter, two years after, um, backpacking, and I, I didn't do the like I don't know if that was available at the time the like Lord of the Rings tourist stuff. I didn't do any of that. I, I think I was aware that the films were filmed there. That's all I want to say about it. Um, I also like I was real excited when the movie came out. Um, I think I've gotten less into movies since then. So we've read it. We know the books. Uh, people have read them more than us, I'm sure. We expect that if you're listening to this, you've read them. So we're not going to spend a ton of time. We're going to speak about characters and events as if people know what happened. Um, we're just going to that- delve into the deeper meaning, right, of the events. Does that mean there are going to be spoilers in case anyone hasn't? Yeah, spoiler yeah. alert, big time. Um, Sauron wins. <laughs> How deep into the bibliography we're going to go? We've kind of done that. I, I see us as probably dipping into the Silmarillion. I'm sure that at one point we're going to have to dip into Unfinished Tales for a particular reason. And I have read, uh, and I'm only familiar with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. I am not familiar with the Silmarillion or Unfinished Tales or anything else. And we have on hand the first three of the net, like the Christopher Tolkien expanded universe stuff. Lost Books, or Lost Tales 1 and 2, Lays of Beleriand. Those are available. I don't think it's going to come to that. I don't think we're really talking about Tolkien so much, but we will. It's a big book, uh, huge time span, like Clark mentioned. Each age is like 3,000 years long, so there's a ton of time to cover. Um, I still get confused. I've read it four or five times. We will undoubtedly mess up the pronunciation of even basic things. People probably dispute. I mean, I hear people pronounce dude's name differently. Tolkien, that's how, like... uh, the audiobook dude says Tolkien. I always said Tolkien growing up. Oh, okay. Or whatever. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> White supremacy. <laughs> let's just get it out there. White supremacy. Um, how we're going to deal... And let's make... So I, I said white supremacy because I want to peel the band-aid off hard. We're dealing with uh, layers and layers of complex, uh, socially constructed supremacy models... It would be silly to ignore the role that, like, white supremacy or, or male supremacy or Eurocentricism um, or other forms of dominance and just sort of weird, uh, like, kinks or whatever, uh, it would be weird to ignore them in 2022, which is when we're recording this. We're going to address this directly here, then we'll address it in greater detail and complexity in episode 7. Um, and between now and then, it's going to remain acknowledged, and that's about it, right? We're going to acknowledge that this is a book by a dead white dude. He's British. Um, there's there's class issues. There's race issues. There's gender and sexuality issues. There's all kinds of issues. Um, and not but. So, and, this is a fantasy realm. Right. But to live in the fantasy realm, at least for the first six episodes, I think we have to think of orcs as orcs and dwarves as dwarves and elves as elves and I, I want to take it one step further um, but I want to give time for Clark to say something and, and also I just want to acknowledge like if it's going to peeve you A that we don't that we don't address it you know get up with us in episode 7 because we're going to ride hard we're going to ride hard on Tolkien Ooh. and if you're and if you're like really put off by that skip episode 7 you know Get up, get up with it when you're ready, when you feel like you're at a 
at a place where you can deal with that stuff. It's going to be available. So to clarify, we're thinking of orcs as orcs, dwarves as dwarves, uh, elves as elves, and not thinking of them as any like as a parallel in comparison to the actual world of England and Europe and the West and the East and all of that. Not on the regular, yeah. Although I think like I think uh, I think real world stuff will come up. Like it does have ramifications. We'll address those ramifications in episode seven, but we also are going to live inside it for a bit. I'm going to let the reader in on a little secret. Episode one is going to be about hobbits. It's a good place to start. And uh, it's where the book starts. It's a book about hobbits, right? And we know that episode seven is going to be dedicated to the anti-racist post-colonial critique. Clark, do you know what the other seven episodes are going to be about? Can you name them all? I can probably not name them all. Try Let's to do see. it. Let's see. We got Wizards. That's episode two. We got Gollum. Yep. By, and after Wizards, we don't know what we're doing, just to be clear. We've planned episode one and two, sort of. I say planned. As we know they're about hobbits and wizards, respectively. Gollum will be an episode. He deserves his own episode, right? So that's, that's four. We're up to four. Yeah, so no particular order. Hobbits, wizards, Gollum, supremacies, and there's seven. Uh, we got orcs. And we're yeah. probably going to also rope in dwarves, elves, other races in that episode. I don't think so. I think we should do no. orcs as a whole episode. Orcs as a whole episode. Dwarves and elves slash Legolas Gimli or Gimli Legolas. Like the ultimate fantasy bromance. I need to. Right. I the interracial to... bromance of Middle Earth. <laughs> the interracial <laughs> bromance. It is. And that episode, and that t- discussing the microcosm of that relationship the is tri- going to tripod to... bromance? Tripod. Like when they're running across with Aragorn, or he's out, just like Gimli. No, and, Gimli and Aragorn's Legolas. out. Aragorn's he out. he he'll be lucky if he even gets an episode. Who is it referred to him as a stuffed shirt? Ursula Ursula Le Guin. A stuffed shirt. Yeah, referred to Aragorn as a stuffed shirt. It's one of her critiques of the. Okay, so anyways, Legolas Gimli working on them is going to allow us to talk about the historical context of the elf dwarf. Elven supremacy also. That's part of that. So dwarves and elves. So that's up to one, two, three, four, five, six. We got a uh, probably gonna be an episode on the ring. I think that there's gonna be an episode on power and e- like the nature of the evil. nature of evil, the nature of evil, and that will be the ring episode. Two more episodes, the mystery topics. To I'm be not, revealed later. Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't know if we've nailed anything else down other than those. So Aragorn. I mean, does Aragorn deserve? On men, on men. Is there an episode on men? The inheritors of the fourth age. I mean, there's a lot. I, I think when I was reading the books, I made comments <laughs> like there were comment like whatever's on men, and then that I roped those into supremacy. Sure, yeah. The broad supremacy topic of like male men. supremacy. Yeah. Okay, so we don't know what those last two episodes are going to be about, but and then I also thought about nature. That'd be a, a, the last two episodes. This is like. With a with a serial, stay tuned. Very mm-hmm. appropriate. Stay tuned. Yeah. There's also the option of oh, you know, we have a stash box episode maybe for everybody who doesn't fit a stash box. Yeah. Which is like this is where my stash is. Like, what do you what do you my mean stash, stash of box? my stash of imaginary animals and monsters and beings like an tree- olifant. Yeah. Well. Yeah. That's that you went for the most realistic of them all. I was thinking like. 
they're not all cre- so creatures, right? Bombadil in particular comes to mind. So does Treebeard and Ents in general. Like Barrow Whites. Barrow Whites, yeah. Again, with the men. Like we don't I don't see an episode on Ents. <clears throat> but I I Treebeard seems to come up. Bombadil, he's the oldest dude in the whole book or whatever. Shelob, Shalob, Shelob, however you want to pronounce <laughs> that character's name. I like Shelob, I'm gonna say Shelob. Yeah. Uh, there's some other dudes poking around, right? Some other characters, and uh, just like detritus, imaginal detritus, eagles, the uh, yeah, eagles, the Nazgul's flying drake. Yeah, the, yeah, those things. Writers. We're never given really a name because Nazgul refers to the the men, right? Right. The yeah, the wraith, the wraith men. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, quick note on texts, right? So, there's a million different versions of this book out there. I'm gonna go with. The old uh, Ballantine books, I think it's the authorized Ballantine paperbacks, old school, probably like published in the 60s, right? I'm going to take a quick look. 19, copyright 1965, this, first pr- this, this printing of this particular paperback is 1965. Some weird tadpole dudes, a waterfall. It's cool imagery, got nothing to do with Middle Earth. Um, seemed like the right weapon for the job. What edition are you using? I've got the Delray Ballantines mass market paperback. Um, I cannot find when it, this edition was printed, but it's mass market. It was after 2001 because we've got on mine, there are photographs, stills from the films. I've got Elijah Wood as Frodo on the, uh, on the Fellowship. I've got Christopher Lee as Saruman on the Two Towers. And I've got Vigo Mortensen as Aragorn on The Return of the King. Who's it? Was Kaf- didn't Kafka? Kafka said um, he didn't want anyone to illustrate or like do cover work for his books because he wanted to the reader to imagine it. Was that Kafka? I don't know. I never heard that. About that was Kafka. someone that came up some like uh, sometime this year. Someone was like, "There are no images because the author wanted the reader to like make their own." We're ready to. Talk about hobbits. So, good place to start. The book starts here. Is there anything else to, worth saying about like why we're starting with hobbits? Why do you want to start with hobbits? I think it's probably your idea. Was it? I thought it was your idea. I mean, you're the one reading Hobbit Virtues. Uh, yeah, well, yeah. Well, why start with hobbits? That's where... Lord of the Rings starts. It's also where the Hobbit starts. The Hobbit started the whole thing. I mean, that started before Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Did Tolkien write the Hobbit as the first thing before Silmarillion and all of that? Did was the Hobbit the beginning of Middle Earth? These are questions that have been deeply considered by uh, much more skilled scholars than us, right? So. Those answers or potential answers to those questions exist, right? My my vibe and also, I guess my informed vibe is that there, like that the world existed prior to the Hobbit, but that there was no intention until after the Hobbit was published to produce like a description of the War of the Ring. I'm also I'm not sure that the War of the Ring was in Tolkien's imagination before the Hobbit. This is something I didn't know until recently. There are different first and and revised editions of The Hobbit in which 
Frodo speaks of the ring, the narrator speaks of the ring differently, and the scene with Gollum, mm. Riddles in the Dark, is significantly different. Okay. Shockingly, actually, right? Which suggests that the ring was just a, a ring of power, right? Like, such as you would slip on in a D&D campaign, for example. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and would have some effect, right? Like, make you invisible, but not necessarily, like, allow you as the Dark Lord to control right. the entire, you know, right. world. So I start with the Hobbits because that's where the story starts. Yeah, and and also Lord of the Rings starts with Hobbits, right? There's a whole prologue about the Hobbits, about Hobbits on Hobbits. Is that what it's called? Concerning Hobbits. Concerning Hobbits, right? And it's so explanatory that I don't think we necessarily need to go into detail. But there's a couple little pieces on there that I want to touch base on. I think um, he describes them as an unobtrusive people. He says, very ancient people, more numerous formerly than they are today, which is just a weird trend in this book where we're, it's easy to, I think it's easier for me to think of this as not Earth, right? And not in any way related to the mythic past of Earth proper. But he consistently sort of reminds us that, that we're on Earth, if that makes any sense. Still hobbits, still elves. Just not as numerous. Most of them have passed into the West or whatever. Yeah, and that always felt like a way to connect the reader, being like, "Oh, this is like this is part of your world." And like hobbits used to be like around, and they're still around, but you'll never see them because right. they're yeah, very yeah. skilled and quiet. Yeah, and that's like I feel like that tone is more persistent in the Hobbit than it is. Yeah, it's a way. It seemed like a way to get young readers, and like if you're reading aloud to them, like parents read to children sometimes. Yeah. Again on page. Yeah, exactly. Again on page twenty-one of the prologue. Those days, the third age of Middle-earth, are now long past, and the shape of all lands has been changed. Right? Long past in our world or whatever. There are third age people. Rereading the book, rereading the prologue, I was surprised by that. They don't have a history prior to the third age. Does that square with what you read or remember reading or knowing? Mm, I don't know much about the history. That's fine. They're I, like, they're they came from people. like Misty Mountain areas and then journeyed westward and we're like oh this lovely land is like great we're just gonna stay here sure and that's a third age migration i think which is to me curious given that like yeah 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 i think yeah given that our other major sure. races arise in the first age right so that's as which far is back also as, a migration yeah that's as far back as we're going um it says at some point in the prologue that they're lettered by the dunedain dunedain right so these numenorean descended men living up north right of 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 which people arises aragorn they taught the hobbits letters i'm kind of obsessed with the witch king of angmar hobbits sent archers from the shire in that battle fornost against the witch king of angmar allied with the dunedain that's a neat sort of uh, heroic historical moment for the hobbits and I thought this was nice. We'll touch on this again in episode seven. Brelander hobbits call mannish folk colonists. Colonists, right? So, like, the men move into Bree. Famously a mixed city, right? Right. Mannish folk are colonists. Very, very mixed city and also, like, very close and very, very close to, like, disaster and being overrun, but they never know it. Yeah, this notion that there's a silent force of men defending all creatures of of uh of the what the northwest yeah. there's, a, there's a name for that what is it Eriador? is it Eriador? Eriador, yep 
I've got another, like, so in the first three pages of the book, they're talking about, oh, hobbits are unobtrusive, they're quiet, they're well-ordered, well-farmed, and it seemed like this whole thing, this is the third paragraph of the book, it's talking about their character, and, you know, they dress in bright colors, their laughter, eating, drinking, simple, like, simple, so it's like good-natured and simple, and I'm, like, I had wrote down this question, because um, I was also, I've watched Doctor Who... I think season one, the new doctor with Christopher Eggleston and like watching that, it seems like I got this weird feeling like the show was sort of placating ordinary folk being like, like the ordinary folk have the most important role. Like that's somewhere in season one of uh, doctor who with Christopher Eggleston. Um, and I'm wondering if that's what this section of the book is doing. Or if it's like, like, is it espousing true virtues, or is it sort of like placating, like, hey, you, like, you folk, um, middle class, lower class people yeah. who might read this, like, you are actually the best people. You are the most important. You know, like the beginning fun. of a political. Yeah, seems, I'm simple. I was raised in right. the simple values in the in farm small country town, where I farm, grow right. and like good, hard earned values. Right. Salt that's of the earth. Types. Yes, sure. I'm wondering if that's a way to. Yeah, I'm, I'm like wondering if there's a motive ulterior conscious subconscious intentional yeah, so unintentional it's the gag is always that the hobbit doesn't want to leave right that, or that's the gag in in the, the hobbit right bilbo has to be like his spirit has to be jailbroken by gandalf gandalf has to trick him into coming on this adventure which, yeah, which will I- ultimately serve these huge ends which we don't even know if the re- the writer was aware of how how deep it was at that moment, yeah, but like, it's sure going not. to set off this massive massive situation. But he doesn't want to go. He's not a thief. He's not an adventurer. He's just this random dude. Um, but he's not a poor dude. It's it's important to know that Bilbo's also like wealthy as fuck, right? Yeah. Okay. He he's well off at the beginning. Right. Yeah. And even better off by the end. Yeah. Um. Okay. Hobbit billionaire. Bilbo, family history, relationship to Frodo. What can we? It's hard for me to remember every time. So what? What are the facts? He's he. Bilbo is Frodo's uncle, cousin. Okay. His is it? Bilbo's cousin is his mother, Frodo's mother. You can check, but you don't have to. We could. This is also I don't like remember. trivia quiz for the listener what's the relationship between bilbo and frodo other than frodo is bilbo's heir we'll get you an answer we're gonna we got someone on it right now clark's on it right now all right we're talking about the relationship between bilbo and frodo right yeah so it says the bilbo this is uh long expected party chapter one uh bilbo had no close friends until some of his younger cousins began to grow up the eldest of these was bilbo's favorite and, and bilbo's favorite was young Frodo Baggins whom he invites to live with him at Bag End after the untimely death of his parents or prior to and they have the same birthday which is probably a bonding point September 22nd which is that the equinox Bilbo's father Drogo was a Baggins Uh, this is the gaffer now the gaffer is Sam's, Sam's father. Correct. What's his name? Ham. He's, Ham Gamgee yeah. is the gaffer. Ham. Okay. Ham, short for Hamfast? Yep. The gaffer says of 
Drogo Baggins, Frodo's father, a decent, respectable hobbit, was Mr. Drogo Baggins. There was never much to tell of him till he was drowned. 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 Drowned, said several voices. They had heard this and other darker rumors before, of course, but hobbits have a passion for family history and they were ready to hear it again. Drogo marries Primula Brandybuck, Mr. Bilbo's first cousin on the mother's side, her mother being the youngest of the old Took's daughters. The Took hobbits of, of the Shire are kind of like, they're like the thug, the thug genetic element, right? The old Took is the orc killer, yeah? He killed an orc knocks and invented his, his the game of with golf. A, uh, with a club. Mm-hmm. Which That's no joke, yards dude. through the air and went down a rabbit hole. That's no joke for a hobbit. Um, I mean, we'll see hobbits killing orcs later. And more on this later when we do the orc episode and acknowledge the fact that orcs are not big. Anyways, where does he get drowned? He went out boating on the Brandywine River, and he and his wife were drowned and poor Mr. Frodo, only a child and all. And then someone else says, I've heard they went on the water after dinner in the moonlight. That's old Noakes talking. And it was Drogo's weight that sunk the boat. And I heard she pushed him in and he pulled her in after him. That Sandy man. Blah, 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 blah. I'm bringing this up because there's some drowned... There's an element of drowning in this book that recurs. Yeah? Yeah. There's water. Sam Sam can't swim. Sam almost drowns trying to chase Frodo out into like out into the water of the what's the river's name? Anduin? Yeah, the Anduin. The Anduin? I guess I also get like there's another Deagle. moment. Deagle. Deagle yes. water. Deagle really is drowning, killed but, like, in the it was, water. They were water. Yep. And um Nazgûl do not like water. Sure. The Nazgûl are drowned well flooded out and presumably their horses are killed. Yep. Uh and their forms maybe change right before the party reaches Rivendell. Rivendell, the last lonely house. The last homely house. Yeah? Yep. The last homely house. Um, there's a moment, too, outside of, outside of Moria on their way into Moria when they're going to bypass the Misty Mountains by yeah, climbing the watcher, under the them. the Watcher in the Water. Yeah, the Watcher in Don't the Water. Don't disturb the water. That's another weird sort of watery moment in this book where I, I feel like if I were Frodo, standing by that water, I might get a bad vibe. Things coming out of the water to take things away. Something is pulled in or not. The pony, the pony makes it, right? Nothing gets pulled in? Uh, the I believe Frodo gets... Like, a tentacle reaches out and grabs Frodo. Sure. And pulls him in a little bit. Which is a bad scene for someone whose parents drown in the water, I think. It's right. like a nightmare, recurring right. nightmare. That might be it. There might be other reasons that I pegged that. Um, Hobbit families. I have Hobbit families written down. I think we've done enough, right? Um, chapter one centers on a party, right? A party that's going to be Bilbo's 11th-1st, 11 birthday. Yep. He's 111 years old. Yep. Frodo on the same day turns 33. And that's the coming of age for hobbits. Sure. And there's a joke, I think, made in this book that those together equal 144, which yep. is a gross. One gross. Is also a 12 dozen squared. Dozen. 12 squared, yeah. Dozen, dozen. Very interesting numerology for a book that's largely devoid of numerological fun so another thing about the age 33 
um, it, from my understanding of from my history in Christian school, 33 is when Jesus came back on the scene in the Bible. Like he was a baby, and then there's this large gap, and then he's back on the scene at age 33. Yeah, does the whole adult life of Jesus occur in that year? I think he might be crucified when he's 33, right? Yeah. Again, I don't know where those numbers come from. I've read the Gospels, but I, I don't I don't remember seeing the number. But that 33 people, is a significant age for that. Jesus. Yeah, I've heard people say that too. It's probably in the Bible. You know. So then there's a comparison of like Frodo and Jesus. Next point, easily offended hobbits, ornery. They seem ornery. Uh, I can't get, I can't process this exchange, this proud feet exchange on page 53 of the Valentines. I'm sure everyone knows the, knows the, knows the moment. Bilbo says in his, in his formal birthday address, my dear Bagginses and Boffins, and my dear Tooks and Brandybucks and Grubs and Chubs and Burroughses and Hornblowers and Bulgers, Brace Girdles, Good Bodies, Brockhouses and Proudfoots. Proud feet! shouted an elderly hobbit from the back of the pavilion. His name, of course, was Proudfoot, and well merited, his feet were large, exceptionally furry, and both were on the table. Proudfoots repeated Bilbo. I just can't ever understand if Bilbo's being corrected and then he's doubling down on his pronunciation of the plural or if there's some sort of joke. The joke being like, my name is Proudfoot and my family are the Proudfoots. You haven't made a mistake, Bilbo, but I am proud of my feet. I think in the film he displays his feet at that moment. His feet are on the table. Puts them up on the table, right. But I don't, I don't understand the nature of the exchange. Like, why does Bilbo have to repeat proud feet? Bilbo's kind of a dick in this scene, isn't he? <laughs> is, it, is he, like, harking on being grammatically correct? Or just, like, insisting like, that he Me not... and my friend, my friend and I. Right. It's I like... didn't do nothing. I, you didn't do anything. Yeah, but Frodo's the one that's being corrected, right? Bilbo was being corrected. Yeah, Bilbo, sorry, Bilbo was being corrected. Right. By the, but he do- by the but proud But then foot. he doesn't... He repeats proud... Proud foots. Proud foots. Um, it's like he, he just can't deal with the intrusion. Um... Which I think leads to my next point, which is about like the the relationship between Bilbo and Hobbiton in the in the aftermath of his first adventure. Right? There's a lot of suspicion about him, about where he's been, his treasure. His house has already been repossessed once. The Sackville Baggins moved in at the end of. Yeah. He's already kicked him out once. It's been you know scores of years since then. Because he was like in his fifties. Yeah. Yeah. He's in his fifties, right. and now he's 111. And so, like, he invited all these people, um, but he doesn't... I don't know that he really, like, loves them. Yeah. He loves Frodo. He loves yeah. Gandalf. I think he loves Gandalf. Gift-giving. Huge. Page 50. In the Valentines. He gave away presents to all and sundry. Hobbits give presents to other people on their own birthdays. Not expensive ones, as a rule, and not so lavishly as on this occasion. But it's not a bad system. It was not a bad system... Actually, in Hobbiton and Bywater, every day in the year was somebody's birthday so that every hobbit in those parts had a fair chance of at least one present at least once a week, but they never got tired of them. Hobbits give gifts, right. So what? Why are we talking about that? It's huge, I think. The gift-giving motif. Why is it huge? The gift-giving motif, let's call it. Why do you think it's huge? I want you to tell me why it's huge. I mean, I I have prepared thoughts, but... So why is gift giving huge? Yeah, and the Lord of the Rings. What's the what's the we've talked about? It, I'm sure. What's the big connection here? Why does Tolkien need? This is a you know for the people playing at home too. The question is why would Tolkien? 
want to set up a gift-giving motif in this book? Why should we start off with a notion of gift-giving? To give something away. Yeah, go on. Well, let's start with, like, what... There's a gift that conspicuously doesn't get given away. Would that be the ring? That's the one, right? That's a gift, right? He intends to give it to Frodo. Yes, he intends to give it to Frodo. Um, he pretends that it was given to him, as does Gollum pretends it was given to him. Like, they earn it, they deserve it. It was theirs. Given. Freely given. As opposed to stolen, right? Right. Which is what it is, in both cases. No. Yeah, in both cases, in Gollum stole it, <clears throat> and so did Bilbo. Does, did Bilbo steal it because he... He he suspected and therefore knew, like, because he actually knew that it, quote unquote, belonged to Gollum. I suspect that if we were to read the first edition and the revised edition of The Hobbit, it would be played. It would play out differently. Mm-hmm. And I think in the revised edition, yes, Gollum says, "Ah, my ring." And Frodo knows this is my, my present. Yeah, I'm sure he precious. does say, "Yeah." He, I think he probably uses my both birthday words. Birthday present. Mm-hmm. But it's possible in the first one he doesn't. It's, it's possible in the first one he doesn't know that he doesn't even own the ring. They, this is this is like I almost feel like I'm faking this because I didn't know this until I read a recent. I just picked up like a companion to Middle Earth, one of a couple companion to Middle Earth like essay books that I've got, kind of an old one in which it it, it gave examples of the how the uh, how the text altered. A Tolkien compass might be the book. I'll bring it by. Get the actual title, or we'll put it in the show notes. That's what that's what the podcasters say, right? We'll put in the show notes. <laughs> we'll put in the show notes. Corrections, apologies. Anyways, gift giving. Got to give stuff away. Don't really want to. Oh, is it part of like a consumerist capitalist culture, society? I don't know. I mean, it could be. I was, I was thinking... Just playing into that subconscious, like, uh, placating the the people who, like, the salt of the earth. And like, oh, yeah, by the way, you have to buy stuff and give it away and, like, you have to give things. And It seems like more of an emphasis on giving trivial stuff, right? Rather than an emphasis yeah. on, like, Chops actually... that you don't actually need. Sure, exchange. Stocking exchange. stuffers. Yeah, so I don't want to go too far afield, but maybe I do, because maybe that's the nature of this work, mm-hmm. right? Um... This is, I don't have the book in front of me, so this is just from the dome. In David Graeber's Debt, a book about economics, right? Um, he describes cultures. I won't identify them with a region because I don't have the book in front of me, but cultures where, or like he sets up a basic notion that, that exchange and value have something inherent to do with human interrelationships, human relationships. So, for example, if I bring you a dozen eggs, as a gift, then if you were, it's a bad example because you have paid me for eggs, but like you could pay me for the eggs and then that would signal that our relationship is canceled. Not canceled, but like there's nothing at stake anymore. We're even, we've broken even. Sort of like the Ayn Rand uh, Atlas Shrugged world where like everything is paid for. Like there are no favors, everything's paid for and is paid for with gold. Don't know the book, but that seems in keeping with my sort of stereotyped understanding of Ayn Rand, yeah. Um, the scenario he gives in the book, this is debt, right? The scenario he gives is if at the end of your, you're 18 and your parents or guardians present you with a bill for everything that they've, everything they've ever bought you, cl- including clothes, food, 
mm-hmm. hospital bills from when you were birthed, right? Um, most people would be like, this is a fucking joke, right? And I'm offended. And it might, you might pay it. It might be the last interaction you have with your parents, right? It signals that we, we didn't do it because we valued you. We did it because of the compensation, right? And that when the scales are, e- point being that when the scales are even, we don't have any reason to interact. We don't need to. So, so for example, like if I bring you a dozen eggs and you don't pay me for them, you, you get this subconscious or, or culturally sort of like evolved notion that you should come by and like bring me something. Right. Okay. In some cultures, like, oh, I owe you. I owe you something. Like little thing, cost of a dozen eggs. Somehow. Right. Somehow. Yeah, but that 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 essentially like the game is what you bring me is consistently of of a l- smaller or greater value than the gift, by which means we secure continual interactions. Because I, you still owe me. You only brought me. You know. You only brought me a little bit of stuff. Or you brought me more, and now I'm sort of in debt to you. But we don't use the word debt because it's not really a it's not really a monetary system. It's more like just an, an exchange that mimics our need to interact or so our desire a, to interact. So the gift giving uh, amongst the hobbits is a way of sort of tying the community together and locking them into a social community, like social community, social interactions, and like making sure that. Hey, like all of those gifts going back and forth and they use the same gifts now and then and they love right. getting them maybe it's like you're part of this community you belong here we're all tied together hashtag community <laughs> yeah I was gonna also draw people's attention to um, what are they called the, the Muppets that live underground the Muppets the, the Snaggle Fraggle Rock Fraggle Rock Fraggle yeah. Rock. are they Fraggles they're called Fraggles right I don't know the, shout out the to beings. shout out to Callie for introducing me in college to Fraggle Rock shout out to Fraggles in general <laughs> shout out to Henson um, Fraggles at least in the <laughs> in the like Muppets Sesame Street combined Christmas special of my, of my late childhood the, there's a scene with the Fraggles because they're like I think they're pitching Fraggle Rock as a show you know how those TV specials worked get some hype yeah they're passing along a rock there's a whole song pass it on it's like a christmas holiday season thing they're just passing along this pebble okay so like i get the pebble this year i pass it to someone else next year it just moves around the community doesn't mean anything doesn't give you extra privileges or anything it's just a rock pretty rock. sort of like like the stone in the like stone soup whoever gets the stone is like oh you got it or like whatever it's baked into the that bay leaf cake. uh there's some like baked into a cake a king cake and there's a crown baked into a cake four and twenty blackbirds Little Jack Horner, the plum. Oi. Yeah. Yeah. There's all kinds of an egg. You could bake an egg into a loaf of bread if you were Russian or if you're anyone. So the gift giving motif. It's community, but it's also this 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 hesitancy that manifests in Bilbo in the next chapter or whatever. You know that night, an inability to to surrender the ring. Yeah, that night. Yeah, which is really a gift needs to be treated as a gift because it needs to go to someone else because Bilbo is now corrupted, more or less. Anyone would be corrupted by it. More on that in episode whatever later. I mean, the, he also, like, when he leaves and sort of just leaves the ring, um, in the movie, he just, like, drops it on the floor and, like, that's it. And Gandalf's like, great, don't touch it. It's like, okay, there it is. And uh, Frodo walks in and finds it. I don't remember in the books. It's like in an envelope on the mantelpiece, mm-hmm. maybe. He also, as when Bilbo leaves, he leaves a whole bunch of like of larger gifts for 
a bunch of other people. Dwar yes. Baggins, Milo Baggins, Angelica, Hugo, Brace Girdle, Lobelia, Sackville ban- uh, Baggins. Yeah, and this is my Frodo, Frodo's like worn out from all the people coming in, giving away all the presents. Well, those gifts that are described next are all ironic gifts, right? They're all middle finger gifts, <laughs> backhanded compliments, sort of breaking up the... I don't know. Breaking up the motif of community into a more like... Frodo, Bill was pretty jaded, frankly. And like some of that maybe is, is the ring's doing. He's all, You know, he's kind of kind of a not a hermit but like um curmudgeonly ornery perhaps ornery yeah yeah definitely let's take a look at those gifts mine is on page 64 in the balantines right so mine's on page 40 39 and 40 adelard took gets an umbrella because he's often stolen them from well it Bill. says dora it, it's he says eldred had carried had carried had yes. carried off many un Doorbag. Had carried off many unlabeled ones, but one was labeled. So that seems to me... One was labeled. Uh, on every item, there was a label tied. There were several labels of this sort. Oh, right. Aldred yeah. took for his very own from Bilbo on an umbrella. Aldred had carried off many unlabeled ones. Right, meaning he just took took Bilbo's shit. At that, like, it seems to me at that time. Oh, I thought it was... Or like I think the, the joke is... Being the tense, like he had taken them I think before. the joke is, bro, you want an umbrella so bad... Here's your very own. Just like, because Dora Baggins, in memory of a long correspondence with love from Bilbo, she gets a large waste paper basket. That's a real uh, finger in the eye or whatever. Milo, hoping it will be useful from BB, a gold pen and ink bottle. Milo never answered letters. Oh, that's, that's definitely They're all, like a... they're all. Convex mirror for Angelica's use. Too obviously considered her face shapely. He really goes hard, and this is a—it's funny because like he's leaving town. It's also this weird thing like they could be thoughtful and like help these like waste paper basket could be really helpful for someone who's written reams of good advice or like depending could be could be useful. But that seems like the most like you don't write back. Here you go, no excuses. That's wild that we would have such divergent potential interpretations that you could put a positive spin on these gifts. I wonder if we polled the readers slash the listeners, I wonder if we would find that many people didn't perceive them as being ironic. Because, I mean, there is irony there for sure, Um, but they could also be really helpful. So, like, you could see, like, this is exactly what you need, and it's supposed to be helpful. Um, The Lobelia's gift of spoons, silver spoons, because she had stolen a bunch... um, it might also be like a way of being like, I know you like, I know you've stolen from me, but like, I forgive you. Here's the rest. That's exactly what it is. But it's so it's like noblesse oblige, right? But like, my man is living at the top of the hill with a gazillion silver spoons, and he's got a suit of armor, in like, nickel delving. Yep. So, and for those of what, us yeah. who don't speak French, what is noblesse oblige? I don't know. Uh, s'il vous plaît. I don't. My understanding is that that, that mean? means like I'm obligated because I'm wealthier and more powerful than other people to a noble uh, obligation. I think so. Again, I, I just kind of picked up the term. Oh, from come on, man! Like, come on, writer. Come let's on, call, word, let's come on, me, wordsmith. Let's call me an English instructor, shall we? <laughs> a human first English instructor, maybe fourth or fifth or whatever. There's other things going on. Um. I want to talk about one more thing, and then we'll we'll stop for the day. I want to talk about... Do you have more to say about the gift, though? No. What I wrote in my notes was, Bilbo has to give away the ring. This is the focus of the gift-giving motif. Ring often claimed to be a gift. 
the precious, right? It's the most precious of the gifts, cannot be stolen. Stealing of this gift would warrant murder, vengeance. Right, retaliation. I mean, yeah. So maybe this, maybe that's the gift giving, that gift giving is so, the gift giving is so prominent in Hobbit society that Bilbo growing up with it and having it part of his life and culture for all these years allows him to give away the most precious gift. That maybe if he didn't have it, if there was no gift giving in the culture and the society, he wouldn't be able to give it up. Like Gollum wasn't able to drop. The ring had to abandon Gollum. Sure. Yeah, it did. Okay. I want to talk about this thing. The road goes ever, ever on. Mm-hmm. So first of all, songs and, and poetry and little italicized uh, centered texts. Not centered, but you know, indented songs. In this. It, it, so the audiobook, I have to admit to being annoyed every time my man bursts into song. Right. <laughs> and then I just skip ahead because it's one of those audiobooks that like each track is like three minutes long. So, um, I mean, you're not the only one that gets annoyed by the songs. I have a friend who, when he read it, he, he would see it on the page and be like, great, just skip that. <laughs> like, I get to move on. I get to skip this whole page. Just moving on. But there is a song that I want to reference. A, a famous one, I guess. A famous Tolkien track. 110 in the Ballantines. The road goes ever on. Page 82 in my um, 2001 copy. For, this is Frodo sings this, right? The road goes ever on and on, down from the door where it began. Now far ahead the road is gone, and I must follow if I can, pursuing it with weary feet, until it joins some larger way where many paths and errands meet, and whither then I cannot say. That sounds like a bit of old Bilbo's rhyming, said Pippin, or is it one of your imitations? It does not sound altogether encouraging. I don't know, said Frodo. So this is the part that's actually important. It came to me then as if I was making it up, but I may have heard a long time ago. It reminds me of what Bilbo said, blah, blah, blah. He used often to say there was only one road, capital R, that it was like a great river. Its springs were at every doorstep, and every path was its tributary. It's dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door, he used to say. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there's no knowing where you might be swept off to. Do you realize that this is the very path that goes through Mirkwood, and that if you let it, it might take you to the Lonely Mountain, or even further, and to worse places? He used to say that on the path outside the front door at Bag End, especially after he had been out for a long walk. I think uh, that was just kind of throwaway stuff when I was younger. Okay, yeah. And like having traveled more, not a ton, but more, and just being old, it's it's much more like um, compelling and relevant than I thought it was. The notion that... He, and there's only cliches to talk about it, right? Like... The journey of a thousand miles begins with one step, etc. Yeah. Like you, it's literally the same journey. The journey into the garden, or the journey to school, or the journey to work. You just extend it another foot, and it's it's the beginning of a of a much larger journey. If you're going to end up at the lonely mountains, the first step is going to be walking out of your front door. Right. That's the point that Bill's so, making. Yeah. I'm, what came up as you were reading that to me was that analogy of like the ski mountain. You take a lift up to the mountain and you can go to the left and there's some black diamonds and to the right there's some blue squares and there's green circles and there are paths that then, there are trails that intersect with other trails and then you're like, all right, how many different ways are there to get down the mountain? And you're like, oh, you could go this way and they're like, well, there are 20 things you could take and then they take to another 20 and you can like mathematically calculate, there are 1,625 or you're like, they're infinite. But 
there's that one person who says like there's only one path and it's the path that you're gonna take sure so like how many ways down for you one yeah um i have another note on that section when it got to like he used to often say there was only one road uh i underlined only one road and in the margin i wrote the dow like there's like there is only the dow like the dow is there's that there is it is everything so like it is the way the road is the way the road is the way I guess I think it's important to remember that, like, we step out of the door every day. Like, in, in my world, people go to the same building uh, every five days a week for most of the year. Um, you could end up somewhere else is the point. Like, you don't – the road doesn't go in a circle necessarily. Right. A, a, it's not a closed loop. You could you could get – by the same way, you could get to a much different place. Right. So – it seems like what Bill was talking about, like the, the road to the Misty Mountains is, is this road. Like you can, like not the actual, it's not like this is Route 89 that will take you there. It's this is a road that will lead you to, not, like you start here and then you go to this other path and then you hit, then you cross this field and then you do that and you eventually get there to the Lonely Mountain. Tributaries to a great stream. Sure. Says, right? Tributaries in a great river. Word. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about Treebeard. We're talking about Hobbits, though, right? Talking about Hobbits. We took a break. Now we're continuing. So the point is, the point is what about Treebeard and Hobbits? Why are we talking about Treebeard even though we're talking about Hobbits? You're asking me? Yeah. Ooh, because he interacts with Hobbits. Which ones? It's like a trivia. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that would be Merry and Pippin. Yeah. When they were in Fangorn. Curiously, he doesn't know that they that their uh, species exists, the Hobbit race. He's not familiar with them, right? Right. They're not. They're not, pre- they're not in the old lists. The old lists, which are presumably lists of all the animals and trees and mushrooms, all kingdoms, uh, in all of Middle Earth, written or recited in in Entish, right? Right. Which is a long language. A lot of descriptions. So probably like an oral tradition, sort of like ancient Greek. Yeah, that's my vibe. Um, so I'll quote a little bit, right? Uh, who? <laughs> I'll quote a little. Who now? You are in my country. What are you, I wonder? I cannot place you. You do not seem to come in the old list that I learned when I was young. But that was a long, long time ago, and they may have made new lists. And then he starts reciting some of the lists. But when does he actually say they're hasty? He says, Yo, you're a hasty people. He says it all the time. I know, but he starts saying it around here. I don't know, the next page. This is Two Towers, Chapter on Treebeard. There's also a um, nice thing about names right here. Treebeard says, So you live in holes, eh? Sounds very right and proper. Who calls you hobbits, though? That does not sound elvish to me. Elves made all the old words. They began it. So that's actually maybe a nice way to stick in something I discovered yesterday in the classroom by opening up a dictionary. What'd you find out? Where is the word Hobbit from? Getting ideas? Nope. I bet you have a guess. Hobbit? Yeah. In English, it's from Tolkien made it up. Yeah, you're basically right. Um, For this. Yeah, he coined it and he built it on old English pieces. Which I think what and those words were like. Oh. <laughs> you got a dictionary in here? 
No. I think it's basically whole builder, maybe. In but future builder... episodes, I might have a, a six-volume Oxford English Dictionary for you to, like, peruse. That would be good. Yeah. Not so hasty, hobbits, but you should be not careful. That's curious from a demonological perspective. Huh? I, had that, I had that underlined. Like, <coughs> what? Like, your own right names? Like, interesting, and you're not supposed to let them out to just anyone? Well, yeah. Hmm. Well, you know, if you're a demon, you let out your name, then the magician can control you. Oh, is that it? I think so. What demon? Where? When? I think in a lot of traditions, probably. In the, like, um, the grimoire tradition, or the, like, what's it called? Goetia. Goetia is the word I'm looking for. Goetia. In the Goetic tradition. Know the demon's name, control it. That's the deal. But it always messes with you somehow. Is it like Rumpelstiltskin? It's like, sounds like Rumpelstiltskin, Mm. yeah. If you can guess my name. Yeah, there's always a trick and shit. Later on down that page, I have another thing that real names tell you the story of the things they belong to in my language. Yeah, which is interesting if if Hobbit does mean whole builder, which I think it does. That's probably it on Treebeard. He thinks they're hasty. Uh, Are they hasty? That's like maybe the deeper question. They seem less hasty than some other kinds of people. Yeah, for sure. But they... in. Relative to ants, they are hasty. Mm-hmm. Everything is hasty relative to ants. Right. So maybe they're also, like, they, they love things that grow. Maybe they grow annuals, and ants are more like perennials. Yeah, nice uh, horticultural comparison. Um, Treebeard does add, this is later on, um, in my version, page 211, the Voice of Saruman chapter, same book. Uh, he adds He adds a line for hobbits. Enter the earthborn oldest mountains and the wide walkers water drinking and hungry as hunters the hobbit children the laughing folk the little people so he characterizes hobbit hobbits both as children and as laughing yeah maybe time to get into that hobbits as children uh, oh, and situation I, uh, i've marked several things throughout them the books where they laugh the yeah. laughing makes them mm-hmm I guess approachable to the reader. Our hobbits children. Are they? They're not children. None of the hobbits in this book are children. Is that right? Are Merry and Pippin um have they reached majority though? Which is thirty three. Mm, they're maybe not, maybe they're in the twenties. Yeah, I suspect they're not quite. We should double check that. You nerds out there, you should double check that. Don't take our word for it. They might be um Because Frodo just Frodo like just made it. Yeah, I suspect they're kind of like younger cousin. They give me like a younger cousin vibe. Yeah. Though adult hobbits, halflings, are explicitly not children per se, Merry and Pippin, in book three, are each juxtaposed with companions who are not adult men. Merry is juxtaposed with Eowyn. Right? Merry rides with Eowyn. Eowyn? Eowyn. Eowyn. Merry <laughs> rides with... Yeah. <laughs> Merry rides with Eowyn, right? Yep. And she's disguised as a man. Dernhelm. And Pippin, uh, Pippin is like hanging out with Denethor and them. Yep. Right? Yep. But during his hanging out in Minas Tirith, he's hanging out with Baragond. That dude is what? Like Denethor's, one of Denethor's henchies. Yeah, I wouldn't say henchy. That's a the... henchman with a heart of gold. No. Henchman like, is. Tower guard. Tower Guard? Is that his official like, title? Or is he a Tower Guard? Yes, he's a one of the Tower Guard. And he's got a son. Yes, Bur- Burgil. Burgil, Burgil, right? I think they're all hard Gs, maybe. Burgil. And rather than quote from the book, let's just talk about what we remember. So, 
do you think that is it correct that he's running around with Burgill and he's mistaken as a child by a group of other children? Yeah, for sure. And they're like, "How old are you?" And then he's like, "I'm." Oh, that's the spot where he says, "How old?" Right? Probably. Yeah. Let's find it. Greeting, said the lad. Where'd you come from? You're a stranger in the city. I was, said Pippin, but they say I have become a man of Gondor. Oh, come, said the lad. Then we are all men here. <laughs> but how, how old are you, and what is your name? I'm ten years already and shall soon be five feet. I am taller than you. But then my father is a guard, one of the tallest. What is your father? Which question shall I answer first, said Pippin. My father farms the lands round Whitwell near Tuckborough in the Shire. I'm nearly 29. So he's 28. So I pass... <laughs> Good math. Thank you. So I pass you there. I'm nearly 29, so I pass you there. Though I am but four feet and not likely to grow anymore, save sideways. Which is funny, but also funny because he has recently grown in the uh, in the Entwood, right? Right. He drank the sacred water and grew probably a couple inches. Is it sacred? Is the water sacred? He grew... He drank water. In he drank there. special water. Yeah. Okay, so that's... But it also, I like the safe sideways, which, like, shows his humor. And he, like, he's he knows it's coming. And but, he knows it's going to get, like, fatter and chubbier, and he's going to keep eating food. But he is legit mistaken as a boy. Mm-hmm. Burgil's, Burgil, seem, Burgil seems to think he's a boy. It's also, like, the like my father is a guard, one of the tallest. What is your father? That's also, like, very Greek. Very patriarchal. You know, in Greece, uh, they will ask for your, like, on medical forms, they'll be like, okay, you're, like, they're getting your information, and one of the lines is your father's name. Yeah. As a way to identify you. Like, yeah, patronymic. That. Patronymic. Yeah. Right. Also, Nordic language, like, they still use that as last names. Sure. See also Russian literature. Do they, does he, like, interact with the boys, or is it just, there's a scene where he interacts with the boys, right? Burgill proved to be a good com- proved a good comrade, the best company Pippin had had since he parted from Merry, and soon they were laughing and talking gaily as they went about the streets, heedless of the many glances that men gave them. That maybe begs the question that begs the segue into like do the do the citizens of Minas Tirith know what halflings are? How familiar are these southern folk with the hobbits or halflings in general? Uh, I would say not very. Pippin, the prince of the halflings. Yeah. Because he's he's the only one or whatever. Right. So Mary, like, oh, Mary shows up. Yeah. Right, I don't know. <clears throat> because but then, like, the prince of the halflings can then be in service to the lord and the steward of Minas Tirith. See again, Supremacy, episode seven. Yeah, right. So I want to, I want to talk about something strange that Faramir says, and I, we're going to come back to this scene several times we're gonna to have to come back on the wizard episode what chapter are you on um the window on the west in the second second book of the two towers faramir drops crazy knowledge fourth paragraph faramir to frodo and sam but it was at the coming of the halfling that isildur's bane should waken or so one must read the words he insisted if then you are the halfling that was named Doubtless you brought this thing, whatever it may be, to the council of which you speak, and there Boromir saw it. Do you deny it? So, I don't totally... T- that slid past me many times as a reader. Um, but this, for whatever reason, I noticed it. Um, I don't know exactly how to read it. 
But it was at the coming of the halfling that Isildur's bane should waken, or so one must read the words. I don't know what words he's talking about, it, and I, I was looking through for like a song or a poem or something, and uh, I don't, I don't know if it's in there, but I know that Faramir is like a pretty lettered gentleman, right? He's got kind of like the, the soldier scholar thing going on, right? He met, I mean, he's the one who always like brings Gandalf to the library. We'll get more into this in the next episode when we're talking about Gandalf, but um, he's pretty steeped in the lore of Gondor. He doesn't know what Isildur's bane is. He says in this chapter, too, that they suspect it was an arrow, because that's what killed Isildur. Mm. In fact, of course, it's the ring. So there's floating around Gondor, like some myth that halflings will bring about something, right? Halfling, yeah, Isildur's bane should waken. Yeah, it sounds like some like a prophecy. Yeah, it's a prophecy. prophecy. It's a prophecy, right. Yeah, thank you. Because that prophecy, so I think that prophecy is something like a child savior complex. We've got something like a child savior structure going on here. Okay. They're not children, but they're like juxtaposed with children. They are halflings. Right. Right. They're not mighty kings. They're like, they're almost clown kings. But it's at their coming that something's going to change. And I want to drop just a, like, a, like a gazillion examples thereof, right? And it wasn't until we started talking about it a few minutes ago that I was like, oh, maybe it's, maybe the nativity of Jesus is one of those. Do you think that... The baby Jesus. Yeah, but Je- so Jesus is like, yeah. We don't, I don't know how deeply I want to get into it because it's not like the, the Christ child is crucified, right? It's like the Christ man, God man is crucified. Right. But then we also, not- then like we still see him as the baby Jesus and the baby Jesus is the savior, even though the, the right. adult... And this isn't a story about sacrifice either, because none of these none of these major, major characters are really need to be sacrificed. I mean, whatever. Maybe they are. Parts of them are sacrificed. But so uh, I think we find echoes of this complex in a lot of Tolkien-inspired fantasy material, especially the following. Right? Um, tell me what you know about these texts, Clark. The Never-Ending Story. Well, do you know it? Uh, guy named Bastion sails like rides a dragon. Bearded dragon, no wings. So you've seen the last scene of the film. <laughs> I I know a Bastion who's named after that character. Yeah, I recently, like within the past five years, read the book by uh, Michael Ende. Ende, it's great, it's killer, oh, unbelievable book. It's basically like everything that happens in the Neverending Story movie done better, plus another half or another another whole section. But anyway, so in, in the never-ending story, it's not just Bastion, right, who's the child savior of this entire world. It's also Atreyu. Do you know Atreyu? Nah, I've it's heard okay, of Yeah, it's kind of, you know, it's a film of my childhood. Literally, almost all the movies I'm about to mention are, like, um, in the Henson metaverse or whatever, too, so... Oh, like Labyrinth that? also? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't consider Labyrinth, and everything in Labyrinth is, like, dwarfish and small... Except, Except for, for Bowie, right? Right, and what's her name? Sarah. Sarah. Yeah. Who is a child. Is a child. Like, on the edge of not being a child. Certainly, that's the subtext. Is the child. The psychosexual subtext of the film. Yeah. Anyways, the Nevering story, Atreyu also, like, he shows up to save the Empress, and, and everyone's like, like, the dude laughs at him, like, a boy, you know, this is this is adult talk. And he's like, yeah, I'll go back to hunting. I'm good. You want me to do the task or not? Mm. I take it or leave it. But he's a boy. My point is like only a child can do it. Either it's a traitor or it's Bastion. Yeah, the task can be only achieved by someone that's not an adult man, maybe. Um, Speaking of like in that same line, Ender's Game, Ender from Ender's Game, 
is the same thing where they raise this child to be a general be, and like only the child like only he and like in that youth and like sort of that youthful innocence can do it mm-hmm. and the dark crystal is another example I think Jen um, and Kira they're gelflings which is conspicuously close to halfling right Yep. Um, and they're the it's last. It's got the ling part. Mm-hmm. They're the last of a dying. Or and they dead. live underground. Ooh. Who lives underground? I don't think Jen and them live well, underground. Well, the Gelfling in the Gelfling, one section of Gelfling that goes out from underground in the series. You're talking about the recent the, series. Re- yeah, that's crazy talk. I, I can't get into that. I don't know. I have really, really um, divisive feelings about about there being like a sequel to the Dark Crystal book. And then Willow. I don't know. Have you ever seen Willow? Yeah. That's the most bald lord of the rings bite that we're discussing it's it's most i think it's most flagrantly just sort of a middle earth ripoff which is fun it's another example of like the expanse that was like opened up by tolkien but again only in that one specifically it's halflings right yeah i don't i don't remember what they're called little little people or whatever they no they have a name but um it doesn't matter maybe they don't maybe they only have names for the big guys i can't remember warwick davis yeah warwick davis yeah He's the one. He's the one. He played Willow, and he played him well. I think it's a great film. Uh, only Halfling can do it. I guess what I'm trying to say about the uh, Hobbits and the legend and uh, is that they seem like they're mythological heralds of a new age. That's how Faramir seems to refer to them in that oblique line. Isildur's Bane awakens with the coming of the halflings. That's like some new age shit, right? Everything's changing. I got so in this page on on page sixty one, Muster Rohan, Rohan, the Muster Rohan. Um, Mary's Mary's kind of walking around the camp and everything's ready and like he's sort of overlooked. Men passed to and fro, going into the king and taking counsel from him. Night came on, half seen heads, blah blah blah. Marching stones faded from sight, and. So he found that everything was made ready and he himself was not forgotten. Paths of the dead, all these people leave. And then like at the very end, in the midst of these gloomy thoughts, he suddenly remembered that he was very hungry and he got up to go see if anyone else in the strange camp felt the same. Um, so there's this, like, the hobbits bring in this, like, they bring in laughter, they bring in hunger, they bring in these human qualities that we feel, which we don't get, like, oh, the soldiers of Rohan were, were hungry and they felt like they need to eat. We don't get that. Nobody talks about food, nobody talks about these things other than the, like, than the hobbits. So that's the way to connect, like, oh, they still, like, these human things that you feel, which will never be written or talked about, the hobbits will serve that role. They right. will serve to like bring the humanity not like man but like yeah humanity and not just narratively structurally or whatever too also in the sort of like real life context right because the men of rohan literally might ignore their own hunger they might choose to prioritize something else right and we martial don't, readiness and we don't get that um that line of thought written down we right. do get it with the sure. hobbits sure and in and in real life, that's true. I think again with children, speaking from experience, right? Like I uh, sometimes, my children will remind me that we need to eat. Something will go wrong with the you know, things will become dysregulated, as it were. Yeah. There's also another another thing with Mary, um, Chapter Five, Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, 
Chapter 5, Return of the King, um, third paragraph in. Tired as he was, Mary could not sleep. He had ridden out for four days on end, and the ever-deepening gloom had slowly weighed down his heart. He began to wonder why he had been so eager to come when he had been given every excuse, even his Lord's command to stay behind. So then we also have this like doubt, this like this inner monologue of like doubt. Should I have come? Should I have not? And again, we don't get that from any of the other characters. So it seems like the hobbits are serving that role that to give voice and like pen to paper, ink to paper, ink to page of what we might think in that same spot. Word. I want to talk about Sam and Frodo a bit. There's a lot to talk about. And Clark thinks we're going to get back to it because he thinks we're going to do a whole episode on love, which I think is a bold notion. <laughs> we'll see. Bold as love. Don't nobody sing about love no more. Sam and Frodo, um, what's their... We, I feel like we said this. Did we say this? What's their relationship? Maybe not. Sam's a gardener. Sam's the gardener. Frodo's the homeowner. Frodo lives in the mansion. Sam lives in the not hovel but yeah less sam will have like the one window and frodo will have many windows facing south and isn't it nice and blah 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 but sam definitely think, classism do you get the sense that sam and the gaffer's property is owned by it's not part of bag end is it is it part of bag end Ooh, i didn't think so he's like a because the no, it's, an, it's like on a, a uh, bagshot row I'd say they're individually owned, but then it could also be like Bag End is the manor house and all the surrounding lands are owned and they're like tenants, but they're also... Could be. Yep. It could also be a situation, like there's a lot of situations like this around here where uh, there's an old guy. It doesn't have to be a guy, but it is in my experience often an old guy. <laughs> and he, his family a long time ago had 300 acres and now he has 10. And, you know, on one side of his house is a property where there's like 150 acres and those people live in Florida. And so he has he has the authority with through their special agreement, you know, hunt the land or collect syrup on it or as is much more common, right, just mow all the grass down and feed it to cows. Mm. I've heard of uh, deals where like you like you might have acres and it's not good for anything other than um yeah, haying, but so you'd be, you'd work out a deal. The farm would hay it. You would you wouldn't get charged, but he wouldn't. Right. He wouldn't pay you anything. It's just like he gets the hay for like the maintenance of. Sure, that's kind of that might be kind of what Sam the Gamgee relationship is with the Baggins family. I don't know. It's maybe there's not enough insight in the book. Maybe I haven't read it clearly enough. I don't think there's enough there to make that conjecture. It's almost as though Tolkien is avoiding talking directly about the socioeconomic. Yeah, contradictions in the relationship between see down like yeah, so see Downton Abbey. Sure. Um, Sam loves Frodo, right? There's nothing, nothing to it. Yeah, he loves him, admires him, calls him master. There's a great moment in the movie which I don't think is repeated. Ver <laughs> repeated. I don't think it's verbatim the same in the book, where Faramir probably says something to him like, you know, what are you, his lawyer? And Sam's like, no. He's like, what are you? He's his gardener. You know that scene? He's like. What are you? His, I'm his gardener. Oh, yeah. And then he says something like, uh, gardeners must be held, held in high, high regard in the Shire. Yeah. He is his gardener. And that's a whole maybe metaphor in itself, right? Pruning and like... Yeah, page 326. Uh, cultivating, cultivating something in the in the individual that can't be self-cultivated. Oh, here you go. Here you go. Are you... Blah, 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 blah. New, you are a new people in a new world to me, says Faramir. Uh, 
Are you all kin of like sort? Your land must be a realm of peace and content, and there gar- must gardeners be in high honor. Mm. As his gardener, he is required to undergo a lot of uh, a lot of anguish on the part of Frodo, which reminds me of another sort of master-servant relationship from the Western literary tradition, that of Don Quixote and Sancho Panza. What's your familiarity with those dudes? How much you know about those guys? Basically nothing. Cool. I haven't read it yet. No, it's fine. Tell me what you know, if you don't mind. Don Quixote is his assumed name to make him a Don. Um, also, a Quixotic comes from Quixote. So he goes out into the world seeking glory and honor and like the old chivalric traditions, which really is not of the time, and he people are like oh that's some crazy old guy who's living in the past and he's got Pancho the sidekick who rides the donkey the ass and he while Quixote rides the horse and he goes and joust windmills and Pancho's there always like picking up the pieces yeah so Quixote sees the world as a sort of playful fantasy maybe not playful maybe um, sorrowful right but a fantasy nonetheless right things are transformed into something greater and more epic than they are in the mundane view. And Ponza doesn't see it that way. For most of it, for most of the book, he doesn't see it that way. And maybe he flips in and out of it, but in general, he doesn't. He's basically doing it because he's going to get an island. That's like the... As a reward? Is a reward for being the and squire to, to Don Quixote. Quixote's giving him this island? The notion is that he's going to be rewarded with an island. And he, at some point, he, he kind of is at one point, but it's, it's complex. But... Um, Ever since I read it, for real, I started noticing that that the dynamic between Panza and Quixote is like echoed in a lot of, or it's like repeated, maybe intentionally, but probably accidentally, in a lot of other duos. And I'm wondering if Frodo and Sam are that duo. I'll just give a couple examples. Here's a, here's like a kind of an obvious one that I think is based on that um, Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. Mostly, I guess, at the beginning of the adventures of Huck Finn, uh, there's a scene or multiple scenes where Tom is saying, you know, oh, that down there, that that group of ki- that that Sunday school picnic, that's like a caravan with treasure. Let's go raid them. Uh, they have evil magicians that have disguised them. All that stuff is is directly from Quixote. I'm I'm assuming definitely that Twain is like, you know, kind of quoting Cervantes. And then there is kind of a notion at some point that. Huck can't see it that way because he hasn't read the books. So having not exposed himself to those chivalric romances like Quixote uh, or Tom it. Sawyer, Huck and Panza, they can't they haven't entered the dream realm yet. So consider also Calvin Hobbes. Right? Okay. The notion being that like someone is following along in someone else's fantasy and someone is more realistic. Now this one's tricky because it's it's Calvin who's Quixote. And he's literally in, I mean stir up a lot of controversy I don't know he hasn't invented Hobbes but Hobbes is often much more down to earth right he hasn't invented him but he has I know so maybe that maybe that screws up the comparison but my point is like there's this one there's lots of great Calvin Hobbes strips oh for sure we That's. Speak, I think that's the best comic strip of all time yeah I think everyone does and we speak for I think a broad majority of human beings who have ever encountered the comic strip right so um, there's there's one thing where Calvin asks Hobbes, 
you know, if you what would you have if you could get anything in the world, if you had any any wish, what would you get? Do you remember what Hobbes says? No. He wants a sandwich. Okay. And Calvin fucking loses it, right? <laughs> you know, like, I'd get this, I'd get that. You want a sandwich? And then the last scene, of course, is like Hobbes is eating a sandwich and saying, I got my wish. And Calvin is, <laughs> has his head down on the table or whatever. He's got squiggles above his head. Um, yeah. So to that extent, or or like in that in that light, I see Calvin as being... I mean, Calvin is definitely Quixote, right? He's always entering a fantasy realm. Things are sure. always things are always sure. more romantic and more chivalric and more right um, vibrant. Oh, the they, dinosaurs, the right. the space odysseys. Hobbes plays along, yeah, presumably with the notion that he's going to be rewarded with tuna fish sandwiches, and also like be like I think there's also companionship there. There's also like poking fun. There's also like irritating and annoyance. All of that. Napoleon Dynamite and Pedro. Have you seen the film? One time. Me too. One time only, and I'm, but I'm aware that that's probably, again, well, I'm not, I don't know, it seems like the same dynamic. Napoleon Dynamite and Pedro. Uh, probably sure. my weakest example. Vote for Pedro. These are my tots. That stuff. I yeah, that's all I remember about the film, too, but I think, like, the Napole- dance scene. Napoleon is probably the lunatic visionary, and Pedro is probably the, like, materialist follower who uh, kind of holds it down, keeps it from floating away. Hmm. So is that keep what's keeps what from floating away the story the, the fantasy from floating into something dangerous or like just straight up you know um, paranoid schizophrenic just into total crazy so grounds right? dynamite a little bit I guess yeah so let, Panza grounds Quixote a little bit Hobbes yeah. grounds Calvin but it, they let him they let him float around so, Sam grounds. Frodo. That's what I'm getting at, but it, the 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 implications are kind of weird and nightmarish because it's kind of like at what point, like if you were Sam, at what point would you be like, this dude is fucking crazy, like this this shit with the ring is out of control. Like, there's a lot of reasons that he has to believe, right? Namely Gandalf's presence. He yanks him up out of the, through the window or whatever and in, in into Bag End. Yep, when he was catches him for spying. He's dropping right. <clears throat> Or even drop no Eve, sir. And by the time he gets to, you know, um, Rivendell, surely it should it it would have to be an elaborate fan, an elaborate conspiracy at that point against Sam. But there are, it would seem What's that, an elaborate conspiracy? The whole setup, the whole the How whole, is it a conspiracy against it's not, Sam? It's not, but it would be if Sam it if Sam were Ponza. Okay, again, it, so here's another <laughs> thing. In in the Quixote there are there's a duke and a duchess who conspire to elaborately trick Quixote because they think he's funny. So they put him through a series of like staged adventures for their own Isn't amusement, it? like the gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, gods. yeah. And that's in the second book. But anyways, like there there's a lingering notion to me sometimes in the Western literary tradition. If you like look at Lord of the Rings in the Western literary tradition, like isn't that kind of funny that like Frodo could be like delusional? And that Sam could be like following him into madness, because he is basically following him into madness. Yeah, Frodo's mental state deteriorates throughout the for sure throughout the books. But delusional? I don't know. But I wouldn't. I don't think I would go for delusional. That delusional seems too far. Sure. Yeah. Maybe that's not correct about Quixote either, though. Right? Maybe the world is. 
it's corny, but like maybe the world is more magical and chivalric and romantic than mm. than it appears to the mundane. So it's like what you make of it in the eye of the beholder. Because not everybody goes on the quest of the ring. Right. They don't even know what's going on. Yep. Right. But like, all, Quixote has to do these things. Everyone thinks he's crazy, but like, so does Frodo. Frodo has to do these things and everyone thinks he's crazy. No one knows what's going on. The Knight of the Rueful Countenance. So they also have to go on the quest, um, or, or like, in going on the quest, they enter into part of the epic tradition that they're that do they're to some extent aware of, right? All the characters in this book, Faramir knows a little bit, Sam knows a little bit, um, everyone's got little pieces of the legends. Um, I think that that trend makes its most explicit walk on in uh, the chapter called "The Stairs of Kirith Ungol." In the second half of the two towers, right? The steps to of uh, the stairs of Kirith Ungol, right? It's one of the like grimmest parts of the book, I think. Gollum's ahead of them, right? They don't know what they're doing. Uh, he's leading them into a literal spider's nest. I think on one side of them is a sheer cliff, and on the other side is like the like the the flat plain of, of mortar, right? I mean, maybe I should be glancing at a map a little bit. I thought, like, on the stair, they're on stairs and they go up and they they can't... There's not a flat plain. There's, like, the stairs going up the mountain. Yeah, I, I suspect that at least one point they can look down onto the plateau of Gorgoroth. Sure. And see, like, hideous fires and the movements of hideous armies. Uh, they're they're trying to decide if they should drink water and it's disgusting water. Sam says he wouldn't trust it, not till I was dying of thirst. There's a wicked feeling about this place. I don't like anything here at all, said Frodo. Step or stone, breath or bone, earth, air and water all seem accursed, but so our path is laid. Yes, that's so, said Sam, and we shouldn't be here at all if we'd known more about it before we started. But I suppose it's often that way. The brave things in the old tales and songs, Mr. Frodo adventures as i used to call them i used to think that they were things the wonderful folk of the stories went out and looked for because they wanted them because they were exciting and life was a bit dull a kind of a sport as you might say but that's not the way of it with the tales that really mattered or the ones that stay in the mind folk seem to have been just landed in them usually their paths were laid that way as you put it but i expect they had lots of chances like us of turning back only they didn't and if they had we shouldn't know, because they'd have been forgotten. We hear about those as just went on, and not all to a good end, mind you. At least not to what folk inside a story and not outside it call a good end. You know, coming home and finding things all right, though not quite the same, like old Mr. Bilbo. But those aren't always the best tales to hear, though they may be the best tales to get landed in. I wonder what sort of a tale we've fallen into. I want to read a little bit more about that, but I just want to dwell on that for a second because it's a, the, the first and probably only vaguely metafictional moment in the book, right? Where they are like, Sam is right on the edge of understanding what to us is the truth, the broader truth. To us as the reader as the truth? Well, as humans on this planet or whatever, in this reality, that Sam and Frodo are, are literally characters in a story. On our level of the narrative. Right. The audience level. He's right on the cusp of realizing that, as so many, you know, around that time, characters tend to figure out 
it's like a trend, you know, the metafiction trend. Characters tend to figure out that they are characters. That's available to to characters in metafiction in in postmodern fiction, yeah, and before. Uh, this book is that's not the aim of this book. The bo- this the aim of this book is to be immersive, uh, credulous fiction, right? Like we're supposed to supposed to live in the world, not question its boundaries. We're not questioning the Lord of the Rings boundaries. Yeah, but this is as close as it comes. Yeah, but there's also like all those poems, songs, and like ancient history, which is all written down, and they realizing they are part of that history. The point, may, a, but only if they survive, only if they go on, and only if they survive. Don't turn around and and and, and come back to render the story. Sort of like right. the war, like the warriors, uh, soldiers of Gondor, Minas Tirith, are like there's virtue in fighting for what you believe. Oh, is this like? And they were talking with Pippin. And then he was like, how, but like, you're not going to be remembered. And like, well, there's still virtue, even if we are not remembered. I wonder what sort of tale we've fallen into. That's the question here. I wonder, said Frodo, but I don't know. And that's the way of a real tale. Take any one that you're fond of. You may know or guess what kind of a tale it is, happy ending or sad ending, but the people in it don't know, and you don't want them to. Even further into the metafiction, right? He's like, yeah, yeah, but we don't know we're in a story. Because the, because... Because John and Clark don't want to know, don't don't want us to know that we're in a story, and then it's kind of like it's kind of like a dream. You don't know you're in a dream mm-hmm. until afterwards. You're like, oh, and then you're like, miss the chance to fly because I could do anything in the dream, unless you're lucid dreaming, and then you know, and then that's that changes the game. Baron, so this is Sam again. Baron, now he never thought he was going to get that Silmaril from the Iron Crown in Thangorodrim, and yet he did, and that was a worse place and a blacker danger than ours. But that's a long tale, of course, and goes on past the happiness and into grief and beyond it. And the Silmaril went on and came to Arundel, Arundel. And why, sir, I never thought of that before. We've got, you've got some of the light of it in that star glass that the lady gave you. Talking about Galadriel, right? Why, to think of it, we're in the same tale still. It's going on. Don't the great tales never end? No, they never end as tales, said Frodo, but the people in them come and go when their parts ended. Our part will end later, or sooner. So he's just realizing he's part of history. Like the history, the tales which are factual in the world are history, and he's they're living in the same world in history. Yeah, but he's holding. They're holding light that's been captured from a from a thing that's like eight thousand years old or whatever. You know, sure. check my check my history math nerds. But all and also nerds, this is I I think might be the only time in the book. Where the word Silmaril is said. This is also like we're still in the same tale. Don't the great tales? It's it's going on. Don't the great tales never end? It's simple. It's like the the road. If you're not careful, Frodo, this road will take you. Could take you all the way to the lonely mountain. This yeah. one below. So like, same road, same tale. So there's really only one tale, and there's really only one road. Yeah. And for Tolkien too, he had not, I think, formalized the Silmarillion into publishable format. Until after, until after Lord of the Rings, right? So even he's being drawn further down into that, like his the world, his little weird secret world that he's like leeching out slowly in the Lord of the Rings here, like the Silmaril. That word, someone really should check. I think that the Sil- the word Silmaril has not come up at all. It might come up. It might be in a song or something. Certainly, Baron and Luthien were in a song already. Um, but their deed and what they did in the name Silmaril. I thought it had been the word Beleriand. I thought they, I thought Sam said Beleriand in this scene, but it's not. He says Silmaril. 
I got one more small thing. The song Big Time by Peter Gabriel. Okay. Everyone in my town, so close-minded or whatever, ignorant little villagers, I'm going to the city. You make it big. Bilbo. Hashtag Bilbo. More like maybe hashtag Frodo. No, hashtag Bilbo after he's already been to the mountain and back. He's really sick of hobbiting. Because they're small, small time, small time folk. Same with Frodo. He's like, ah, I wish the dragon would earthquake or something would shake him up. That's a weird line. He says it to Gandalf at the beginning, huh? Yeah. Um, I guess there's, there's, as I was reviewing the books, I've noticed a theme with hobbits sort of kind of getting to, I guess their nature, just these many examples they have this humor. They'll show. They'll they'll laugh. Um, see Sam Sam's stubbornness. Like I'll knock all the holes in all the boats, and either we're going together or not at all. This is when the when Frodo's leaving the fellowship, and Frodo laughs out loud and says, "No, no, leave one. We'll we'll need it." Um, there's humor. There's humor there. They laugh. They also with the meta with the meta fiction whatever. Metafiction, they, yes. Yeah, metafiction, where they know they're in the story, but they have to go on. They're required to go on. Um, and like, there's this whole thing where they know it's useless. They don't see real hope in it, but they they stick together. They still go on. They're doing this thing. Whether they, I don't know. It's just like this determination that they just keep going as hobbits. And the men do too, but there's like, it's this hopeless thing, but they keep going, they keep persisting. Um, and in the beginning of the book, we're kind of, kind of introduced to that. Who was it? Gandalf. Shadow of the Past, Fellowship of the Ring. Soft, so he's talking about hobbits. Among the wise, I am the only one that goes in for hobbit lore, an obscure branch of knowledge, but full of surprises. Soft as butter they can be, and yet sometimes as tough as old tree roots. So they have this determination about them as well. I don't know, I think like I think Tolkien is like expounds on these things as virtues and maybe to like be as virtues that people should pick up on in our in our world, in our real world. It also it squares with like stereotypes I hold about um, English self identity, especially during the wars, right? Stiff upper lip. Sure. Keep or calm like, and carry on. Yeah. Hanging on in quiet desperation. Is Whatever the, that is what's the English that, way. What's that Churchill quote? Uh, success is never final. Failure is never fatal. It's the courage to continue or persist that counts. I mean, is it hobbits or is it just these hobbits in this story? Is there any reason that hobbits are special in this regard? We, you know, um, certainly that's a, that's a great question. Is because we are presented with these particular hobbits. Yeah, not the hobbit that's like picking his earwax out and then trying to flick it and can't get it off his finger. Right, which is most hobbits. Right. Well, maybe not most, but it's <laughs> <laughs> but like that common that commonality. Like the salt of the earth, common people, are, they're the most important people. Right. And so are there any people in Middle Earth that don't identify themselves with those traits? Elves, right? The elves don't give a shit if they're lazy, right? They're just like, they don't seem real enamored with their own fortitude, elves. They seem to be like, kind of, almost, they're kind of a fragile people. 
right? They're strong, but like they're like they can be disbanded by like time. You know, for example, by the time we get to the fourth age, they're basically all going to be gone. And if we regard our world as as the same world as Middle Earth, they oh. are all gone. They could be banished with bells and with you know with like light. Elves, hobbits, yeah. elves. I mean elves. My point is like you could say. Stiff upper lip applies to also dwarves, right? Dwarves are also famously like uh, stalwart, stubborn, stubborn, yeah, sure. obstinate, <laughs> yeah, and ditto men, ornery. Right? The, the that the, all the the Strider speaks of the rangers like that. You know, if it wasn't for her, yeah, and ditto Gondor, right? Denethor and Boromir. If it wasn't for the men of Gondor, with a long. Long standing, yeah. Same with the Rohan. Dead, dead. Gondor. Wind. Where was Gondor yeah, when yeah, the Westfold right. fell? Ah, yeah, yeah. So we m- did it on our own. Yeah. So men have the same thing going on that we're ascribing to hobbits. So it turns out, like, what we're also seeing with all of these, like, all these different places and civilizations, societies, whatever, is sort of what John Stewart was picking up on in his podcast. He was like, "Life is fucking hard for everyone." Mm. So like life is hard for everyone. He goes on to say that it's just some people don't need to put in extra steps to make the recipe taste good. Like the t- taste good for some people more easily. See episode seven supremacy. Um, it's funny though that you mention extra steps because I know that's not what you were getting at. But like hobbits literally have to put in extra steps for a hobbit to go to Gondor is more difficult than for Gandalf to go to Gondor. Gandalf gets to ride animals, you know. The fastest animal. He always gets the fastest. Eagles will carry Gandalf around. Yep. Whatever. We're not talking about Gandalf, but like, it's a bigger journey for a kid, for a child. It's a longer. The other thing about the child thing, I meant to mention this. The, the casting of Elijah Wood as Frodo Baggins does a lot, I think, for people of a certain age, my age, maybe a little older, to, in order to, like, it does a lot to keep Frodo young because Elijah Wood I think has had a reputation as a boy actor right so I think of Elijah Wood as he played Huck Finn in a Disney yeah he played Huck Finn in in a Disney version Um, he also was a kid in another movie right his first movie he was a kid in he was a kid when he started and he he was boyish um, throughout I'm not hating on Elijah Wood either I think he did a great job playing Ad-Rock in that one video Um, and I think he crushed it as Frodo yeah, but he does it. He does it with kind of like um, an industry-induced boyhood. Yeah, I mean, he was twenty when the films came out. When the first film came out, which is the right age. Yeah, and that's the right age for Frodo, right? Because Frodo's He's in Back to the Future Part Two when he was eight. That's a good example of the of his his boyishness and his... Avalon when he was nine, Paradise when he was ten, Radio Flyer eleven. Radio Flyer is the, is the famous one to me. Except I never saw it, but that's Forever the one. Forever Young, Huck Finn, this is every year. Good Son, same year. The yeah. North, The War, Flipper, Yo, Ice Storm. Save it for the Elijah Wood fan cast. <laughs> yeah, so childhood actor. Yeah, yeah, I just wanted to throw that in because I, I think, uh, yeah. The notion that Frodo is a boy is easier, like that's a more, we're, most people are more familiar with the movies, right? Yeah. Okay. And at that point, he was 20, which is, like, just over the threshold of, like, when our society says, like, oh, you're an adult now. Plus, he had made 30 movies as a boy, so right. he was established as a boy actor. Right. Yeah. Um, okay. What else do you want to say? Because I'm good. I keep thinking, keep saying I'm done. I have, a, I have a good ending quote, I think. 
Please I wrote do. down for any quote. I guess, I guess I'll read... I can read a little bit, and then you can cut out whatever, and then we'll have the ending quote. So I'll read a little bit. Cut it out with that noise? No, with a, like, more like a soft... Like a flute or whatever. I'll fade you out. Yeah, yeah. But this is sort of like a softer ending. Uh, I'll, I'll read this whole quote. I should like to save the, the Shire if I could, though there have been times when I thought the inhabitants too stupid or dull for words, and I felt that an earthquake or an invasion of dragons might be good for them. But I don't feel like that now. I feel that as long as the Shire lies behind safe and comfortable, I shall find wandering more bearable. I shall know that somewhere there is a firm foothold, even if my feet cannot stand there again. Of course, I have sometimes thought of going away, but I imagine that as a kind of holiday, a series of adventures like Bilbo's or better, ending in peace. This would mean exile, a flight from danger into danger, drawing it after me. And I suppose I must go alone if I am to do that to save the Shire. But I feel very small and very uprooted and, well, desperate. The enemy is so strong and terrible. He did not tell Gandalf, but as he was speaking, a great desire to follow Bilbo flamed up in his heart, to follow Bilbo and even perhaps to find him again. It was so strong that it overcame his fear. He could almost have run out there, there and then, down the road with his hat, as Bilbo had done on a similar mooring long ago. My dear Frodo, exclaimed Gandalf, hobbits really are amazing creatures, as I've said before. You can learn all that there is to know about their ways in a month, and yet after a hundred years, they can still surprise you in a pinch. So, even though we may talk about hobbits, there's still more to learn, and they'll surprise us. Join us next week. We'll talk about wizards. Peace, Peace. out.